Martin was a very inconvenient hero because his life could not be made into a pleasant, easy, smooth story unless it were taken out of its reality. From American Public Media, this is King's Last March. I'm Kate Ellis. And I'm Stephen Smith. And this is Vincent Harding. I am a retired professor of religion and human transformation. Vincent Harding was a historian and activist. He was also Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s longtime friend and advisor. Harding worked with King closely and even occasionally drafted speeches for the civil rights leader. Harding helped write one of King's most controversial speeches, a powerful address against the war in Vietnam, delivered exactly one year to the day before his assassination. We sat down with Vincent Harding at his home in Denver, Colorado, in 2008. Back then, we talked for nearly two hours. And you've already heard some of Harding's recollections and insights into the man King was in his final year. But that wasn't all that Harding shared with us. Here we have the opportunity to bring you more of Harding. It's been almost four years since he passed away at the age of 83. One of the stories he told us was how he first met Martin Luther King. It was 1958, and Harding was on a trip across the South. And I was with a group of five strange guys who had been involved in developing an interracial church in Chicago, a Mennonite church. And we had decided that we'd like to test out our deep beliefs in the brotherhood that we shared and said to each other that it's one thing to believe that and to practice that in Chicago, but what if we lived in the South? So we decided just for a while, the five of us, three whites, two blacks, to get into an old station wagon and drive through the South, promising ourselves and others not to allow ourselves to be separated. Uh, This was 1958 in the South, uh, saying that if we really believe we were brothers, then the laws that unenlightened humans created should not be able to separate us. We decided... Late, after we got into Montgomery, rather into Alabama, we were driving across the South. It was clear to us that we shouldn't be in that state without trying to see King. And we called. His wife told us that he was in bed recuperating from a stab wound that he'd received in New York City while on a book signing tour. You know, several years ago, I was in New York City autographing the first book that I had written. And while sitting there autographing books, a demented black woman came up. The only question I heard from her was, are you Martin Luther King? And I was looking down writing, and I said, yes. The next minute, I felt something beating on my chest. Before I knew it, I had been stabbed by this demented woman. I was rushed to Harlem Hospital, 
It was a dark Saturday afternoon. That blade had gone through and the x-rays revealed that the tip of the blade was on the edge of my aorta, the main artery. And once that's punctured, you're drowned in your own blood. That's the end of you. It came out in the New York Times the next morning that if I had merely sneezed, I would have died. He had come back to Montgomery to rest, to heal. But if we wanted to come by, that would be fine. She would try to see if he would be interested in seeing us. And he was very glad to see us. And he was very welcoming, spent time with us, told us that some of us should come back south and help in the movement there since we belonged to one of the peace churches and, as he saw it, would understand what the nonviolent movement was trying to be and do uh, in the south. And so that was my first meeting of Martin King in the fall of 1958. Harding would go on to help King in much of his work. This included drafting some of his most important speeches and advising him in many of his campaigns. I was deeply engaged with King and the movement that he represented and the movement that helped to shape him and me and the movement that he did so much uh, to shape. We knew each other over those years, as I mentioned, after 1958, but especially after my wife and I, Rosemarie, went south from Chicago, where we were living, to participate in the freedom movement. We went down in 1961. From that point on, King and I were in continuous kinds of conversations, worked together. Uh, He visited me in jail. I visited him in jail. Uh, And we knew each other, especially knew what our convictions were about what it takes to build truly human uh, communities that are filled with life and nurture uh, for us all. And as the war in Vietnam began to develop in its terrible way, we had a number of conversations about that, and I knew what his convictions were, and he knew what mine were. Harding told us that he and King were always pushing one another to evolve and grow in their thinking. But uh, he called the shots for his own future when he decided, as he put it in his own words, I guess first I heard that in 1966, I choose to identify with the underprivileged, he said. I choose to identify with the poor. Once you do that, you're putting yourself on very dangerous grounds. I think it was 
Halberstam, uh, who said at that point, Oh, look, King has chosen to be for the poor, to speak for the disaffected. And if he does, then his voice is going to have to get more harsh like theirs, and he is going to end up being more alienated than he's ever been uh, from the mainstream of American society. King chose to be one with the poor, and you cannot, in a materialistic society, be one with the poor unless you are turning your face against the mainstream of the society. That's what we mean by becoming more radical, uh, to use the terminology at its deepest meaning. That's what it means to go to the root of the problems of the society, that you become someone who Mr. J. Edgar Hoover can call the most dangerous Negro in America. Harding told us that King's public-facing persona of the steady, unwavering leader was just that, his public face. King was constantly wrestling with the big questions facing the movement. When we have uh, an image of King sort of getting up and marching or getting up and leading or making wonderful speeches, we forget that in these last years, he was trying to figure out how do you organize people in such a way that they are willing to take extraordinary risks and try paths that have not been tried before uh, in this country. He, he clearly saw the possibility that Gandhi-like mass civil disobedience, as you said, might be one way of opening up the energies of the people and one way of shutting down the constant oppressive action uh, of uh, the government. So how you do this, that was the question. For me, one of the most important things about him was that he was willing to keep wrestling with that all the way to the end. How do we do this? What, what can we do? He knew there were no easy answers. He knew that young people all over the country were looking for some kind of way to express their anger and their determination and quietly their hope. And what he was feeling was that for better and for worse, much of the responsibility for trying to voice these things, open these things, guide these things, was on him. Maybe he was taking more on than he should have been trying to take on. Maybe we were pushing more on him than we should have pushed on him. Maybe we were stepping back from our own responsibility as citizens, as friends, as members of the movement from taking on our role in being creative uh, leaders in this situation. But King just 
took it on, took it on, took it on, and knew that there was no easy way to find an opportunity for the transformation of this country. You remember at the end, uh, in Memphis there, his last speech uh, was saying that our work is to make this a better country. Let us rise up tonight with a greater readiness. Let us stand with a greater determination and let us move on. In these powerful days, these days of challenge to make America what it ought to be, we have an opportunity to make America a better nation. Just, you know, so simple in some ways. Make this a better nation, he said. That's what our work is. And how to do that uh, became such a hard test. And, of course, it's still a hard test. How do we create a more perfect union? I suspect King would still be working on that uh, if he were here now. asked Harding where he was on April 4, 1968, when Dr. King was assassinated. I remember that Rosemary and I were sitting with a dear friend in Pascoe's restaurant in Atlanta when Mr. Pascoe came over to whisper to me that that Martin had been shot. And I remember simply feeling like I had been shot. We didn't know at the time whether it was fatal and after we went back home. We got a phone call. I don't remember who it was from that told us that he was gone. And what I vividly remembered was just smashing my fist up against the wall next to the phone that I was speaking on. King's death was not in isolation, but it was the time of a lot of dying and a lot of undermining of the movement. 
And a lot of people were clearly growing very discouraged, partly because we are so damned American. We think that we can change a country's ways that have been carried on for hundreds of years, that we can change them in 10 years or in 15 or 20. And we wanted it. We wanted it as we used to chant, we want it all and we want it now. That is so American. King at his best was so un-American. Recognize the need for process. Recognize the need for development. So when he was assassinated, there was a lot of dying going on. And his assassination was the terrible epitome of that all. And I think it took away the breath, almost literally, from a lot of us. And a lot of people had to stop and ask, am I prepared to go on with such a costly uh, kind of battle? A lot of people felt, is this country worth it? Uh, And there was a tremendous amount of disillusionment, uh, a deepening of cynicism, a lot of fantasizing other places as a place for our struggle. Uh, But all of that was part of what we had to deal with, uh, with the assassination, because, of course, the assassination just brought to its highest point or its lowest point what the powers that be might be capable of doing to those who brought deep and radical challenges to the status quo. And I think lots of people were frightened. We were afraid of what of what that death meant in terms of our own lives and what we were called upon to be and to do. Someone wrote shortly after his assassination, the dead men make such convenient heroes because they can't get up and speak to us about the lives that they have lived and urge us uh, to go beyond uh, celebration. And my play on that idea of dead men making convenient heroes was to recognize that Martin was a very inconvenient hero because his life could not be made into a pleasant, easy, smooth story 
unless it were taken out of its reality. And my attempt was to call attention to the fact that King was a very rough Sean kind of hero whose ways and words and actions were not meant to comfort or pacify us, but to stimulate us and challenge us, especially in those last years of his life. I'm sorry to say this morning that I'm absolutely convinced that the forces of ill will in our nation, the extreme rightists of our nation, the people on the wrong side, have used time much more effectively than the forces of goodwill. And it may well be that we will have to repent in this generation, not merely for the vitriolic words and the violent actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence and indifference of the good people who sit around and say, wait on time. Somewhere we must come to see that human progress never rolls in on the wheels of inevitability. It comes through the tireless efforts and the persistent work of dedicated individuals who are willing to be co-workers with God. And without this hard work, Time itself becomes an ally of the primitive forces of social stagnation. So we must help time and realize that the time is always right to do right. I don't know if you remember during the French student revolution of that same period, there was this great graffiti on so many of the walls. It said, be realistic, demand the impossible. And I think that what King was reminding us of is that that is the meaning, especially as Gandhi practiced it, that is the meaning of nonviolent revolution, that you are daring to attempt the impossible, that which could not possibly be. Uh, and that may stretch you out beyond where you dream you can go, but it may be that it's only as you get stretched out that way that you begin to discover uh, what your best possibilities are. So yes, it may have been beyond the capacities, but those are beyond the capacities as they existed then. I think that as best he was trying to say, stretch out and let's see if their capacities we haven't discovered yet. Next time on King's Last March. I don't 
always look forward to Martin Luther King Day because there are so many stories that are just not true about who he is, who he was, and what his impacts were. Oftentimes, Dr. King's legacy gets weaponized, particularly against Black people, um, to encourage Black people to be passive. And his doctrine of nonviolence gets taken way out of context in the sense that um, it often gets read as being non-confrontational, which, as we know from history, um, King was incredibly confrontational. Our interview with Alicia Garza, one of the founders of the Black Lives Matter movement. King's Last March is a production of American Public Media and APM Reports. Support for King's Last March comes from the Olseth Family Foundation, working to improve community through support of the arts, education, the environment, and the underserved.